0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11 morning, we'll give attention to verses 37 through 44 of Luke 11. Luke 11, the beginning in verse 37. Luke records this. He says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and he reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make also the inside? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Throughout the Bible, The biblical authors use the terminology of light and darkness to contrast Jesus Christ with the rest of the world. They speak of Christ in terms of light. Jesus spoke of himself this way quite frequently, and he spoke of himself this way to show the contrast between him and the the sinful world around him. We see it all the way through. Most, most clearly, John records these things in his gospel, though we see it in other places. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, we find this. John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome him. In John chapter 8 verse 12 Jesus is speaking and he said this and he spoke to them saying I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The light of the world. Follow me and you walk in light. No longer will you walk in the darkness. And A couple pages over in chapter 9, verse 5, he says, As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. A few pages over in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 46, Jesus says these words, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Verse 26 of that same chapter, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. There in verse 26 and also in the rest of the New Testament, salvation is quite frequently referred to as turning from darkness to light. We see this at Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, where in Acts 26, verse 17 and following, God is speaking to Saul, who he's now renaming Paul, and he says to him in his commissioning of him to ministry, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me who are Christians. Christians are are people who have turned from the darkness and have turned toward the light. And in embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, have been reborn and now are sons and daughters of light. No longer children of darkness. But in spite of the fact that Christ is the light of the world who came to shine in the darkness, and in spite of the fact that he offers the invitation to men and women that they might turn from the sinful darkness that they've lived in, and and believe in the light, and embrace the light, and become children of light. The sad reality has been for generation after generation. What is recorded in John chapter three, verse nineteen? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. People love the darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. So, in light of all this, it doesn't surprise us then that when we have, when we see the enemy of our souls described in God's word, the one who would come to tempt us, the one who would come to lead us away from Christ, the one who would, who would come to to, to tempt us to, to whisper seeds of doubt in our minds about God and about His Word and what His intentions and motives are, that He would not come to us as one who outwardly shows up as an evangelist of darkness, but instead we're told, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan doesn't advertise himself As an evangelist for darkness, he disguises himself as light. He convinces men that he is the light, when in fact he's darkness. He convinces men that if they would follow him and believe in his philosophies, that he will lead them into the light, when in fact he leads them into darkness. Satan, the one who is defined by darkness, disguises himself as light. And one of his great strategies in the world has always been to convince a man or a woman that they're walking in the light when in fact they're filled with darkness. At the end of our previous passage, Jesus issued a warning to the crowd to whom he was speaking about this very thing. In verse 35 of chapter 11, he he sort of ended that, that message with this very serious warning that's very easy to just sort of gloss over. He says, therefore, be careful, be careful, pay attention to yourself, lest the light in you be darkness. Examine yourself. Test your own heart. There is a real possibility that you can be very religious and very moral and yet be filled with darkness, all the while believing yourself to be in the light. Be careful. Be very, very careful. And he follows up that that serious warning, that, that serious call to personal reflection and an honest accounting of ourselves about who we are and where we stand with the Lord. He follows that up with really a very living and vivid illustration of what it looks like to believe that you are light when, in fact, you are in darkness. And he uses a lunch invitation from a Pharisee to illustrate the principle that he just taught. Now, we've encountered the Pharisees multiple times now in Luke's Gospel, and so you know if you've been traveling along with us through this series that that these are religious leaders, prominent religious leaders of Jesus' day. They are experts at the law, and we know at least at this point that they hate Jesus because he's a threat to their religious system. They are incredibly jealous of the following that he is attracting among the people. And everywhere he goes, there they are. Everywhere he goes, the Pharisees are right nearby, They're watching, they're listening, they're looking. They're not there because they're interested in what he has to say. They're not there because they're truly considering the truths that he's delivering. They're there because they want to keep an eye out for any mistake that he'll make. Any opportunity that he might give them to accuse him, to condemn him. And so they're always around. Sometimes they're just there in the background, other times they come to the forefront and they speak and they challenge him. But they're always around. They had devised this entire religious system that was loosely related to God, but it was really just a a whole system of human religious works. It was a whole system that was built on the foolish lie that a person can be good enough and moral enough and religious enough to earn God's favor, that if you wanted to be right with God, that you followed the rules and you kept the law. And the dominant idea, religious idea in the first century, really is still in a different form the dominant religious idea in our world today. And it's the idea that good people who do good things go to heaven. That if you're moral enough and if you're religious enough, you can achieve salvation. That if you're moral and religious enough, you can escape divine punishment. That if you're good enough and you're religious enough, you can become acceptable to God. It's the big lie that's dominated the world from the first century until today. That people can get to heaven by being good. And the Pharisees were the first century evangelists for this false religion. And Jesus will note, we'll see this today but we'll note it throughout, saves his harshest criticism, his most cutting words for people who propagated this sort of a false system. He does not hold back in confronting their hypocrisy and the foolishness of what they're teaching. He does not hold back in challenging the emptiness of their hearts. In fact, at various points in the Gospels, Jesus calls them all sorts of names. He calls them sons of hell, blind guides, fools, blind, whitewashed tombs, dirty dishes, murderers, serpents, brood of vipers, sons of Satan, hypocrites. That's a pretty robust list of names to call someone. He leaves little room for any interpretation about what he thinks about the Pharisees and about the religion that they propagate in God's name. And it's noteworthy to to contrast how Jesus encounters and how he engages these men compared to how he encounters and engages lost people, unbelievers, People who are just living in open and outright sin with no regard for God. He encounters those kinds of people incredibly differently than he encounters people like the Pharisees. He usually engages unbelievers, lost people, sinners, with compassion and with kindness and with grace. And we could show illustration after illustration. We could see him walk up to an adulterous woman who's just getting water from a well and engage her in conversation. And the whole conversation is, is a conversation that's built around truth, but it's an engagement of kindness, a loving engagement. We could see him another time walk up onto a scene when a woman has been caught in the act of adultery and is about to be killed by stoning by the religious people in her her town. And Jesus walks in and he confronts the hypocrisy of what's going on and he speaks words of kindness to the sinful woman. We could see how Jesus encounters a rank sinful tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' home for a meal. He tells him to invite all of his sinner friends. And they share a meal together, and he tells him the truth. And it transforms his life. We see how Jesus engages uh, a man like Matthew, who, who writes the Gospel of Matthew, a tax collector who's been robbing his people. And Jesus encounters him and says, Come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. When he encounters people who are just living in the darkness, who are sinful, who are unbelievers, he encounters them largely with kindness and compassion and grace, and he presents to them the truth and calls them to repent and believe. But when he engages people like the Pharisees, there's none of that. There's a sharpness to his tone. There's a cutting nature to his words. And he does not hold back when he speaks to them. In fact, we could find in the New Testament, he refers to the, to the, uh, to the Pharisees as hypocrites at least 15 times. And that's a, a summary word that sort of is a, a summary word that covers a whole host of things that they did. They were just hypocrites. It's a word that sort of has its roots in, in stage plays and in, in play acting. It's, it's the idea of on a stage you, there'd be a play and, and people would put on a mask and the actor would put on a mask and pretend to be a character that, that he really wasn't. But he was putting on and playing that, that character for a role in a play. It was a word that describes somebody spiritually who pretends to be something that they are not, who puts on a mask for other people to see, who puts on a show for other people, who projects themselves to be religious and godly when in fact they really are not those things at all. It's a hypocrite. People who pretend to be beacons of light when in fact they're filled with darkness. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were really the poster children, the definition of spiritual hypocrisy. And so here in this text, as Jesus has lunch with one of these men, he begins to expose spiritual hypocrisy in his life and in the lives of his friends, the other Pharisees. And he shows you and he shows me really some characteristics of what spiritual hypocrisy looks like. And he illustrates it through the lives of the Pharisees. But my friends, these characteristics were not limited to the Pharisees of the first century. Spiritual hypocrisy is a a problem that has plagued the people of God throughout the history of his dealing with people. Every generation has had people who pretended to be beacons of light, but in fact were filled with darkness. People who presented themselves to be very religious, who in fact were far, far, far from God. Spiritual hypocrisy. And as we look at the text this morning, I want to just show you some characteristics of spiritual hypocrisy as Jesus sort of peels it back in the life of this Pharisee. And the goal really is two things. To help us to spot hypocrisy from the real thing in real life when we see it. Externally, but more importantly, it's to equip us to be able to look at the mirror and really look at ourselves with a long, hard look and ask the question, Do these characteristics mark my life? Because what we see in the lives of the Pharisees is these people are convinced, absolutely convinced, that they are God's favorite people in the world. And nobody could tell them anything different. The curse of spiritual hypocrisy is it blinds the person, to the reality of it in their heart. And that's what had happened to the Pharisees, and that's what can happen to you. And it's what can happen to me. And so we pray, as we look at this text this morning, that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to the, to the reality of our lives and show us if any of these characteristics are finding a root in our hearts, that we might take them to the Lord be cleansed it's a profound danger that we should take very very seriously well how does this sort of flesh out what are these characteristics the first one we see in verses 37 and 38 it's this spiritual hypocrites love to add to god's law they love to add to god's law they're not content with, with what God has plainly said in his word. They, they, they go above and beyond that and create new laws and create new rules that they impose on themselves and everyone else. They add to God's law. We see that here at the very beginning. We're told that Jesus was speaking, or He was speaking, this sermon that he had preached just previously. There was a Pharisee who had approached him and had invited him to his home for a meal. Now, this is really a surprising invitation because Pharisees typically did not eat with people that they considered sinners. Because to eat with somebody, to share a meal with somebody was seen as an act of friendship and an act of kindness. And they wouldn't do that with someone that they saw as defiled. So this Pharisee inviting Jesus is a bit surprising. It's also somewhat surprising that Jesus accepts the invitation. But it's clear to us as the event unfolds that he accepts the invitation with a very clear purpose. He intends to use the meal As an opportunity to confront the spiritual hypocrisy of this man and his clan. And so we're told that he's invited and he goes to the man's home and he reclines at the table. Again, we've seen this as well before. In the first century, you didn't eat at a table the way you and I do. You didn't sit at a tall table where you're in a tall chair and you, you know, sat and ate at a tall table. The table was low and the food was on the table and you'd recline, you'd lay down by the table. Typically, prop yourself up on on one arm and use the other arm to reach for food. And so Jesus reclines at this man's table and he prepares to share a meal with him. But as he enters his home and as he reclines at the table and prepares for the meal, there's one thing that he does not do on his way to the table. He does not wash his hands. Now, you and I recoil at the idea of eating a meal without washing our hands these days. We've just come off of a fresh season of absolute obsession with washing hands all the time, right? As a matter of hygiene, because we were all terrified that if we didn't wash our hands 437 times a day, we were gonna contract COVID-19. And so now we wash our hands all the time. And we watch other people to make sure they wash their hands, right? Like, I don't think he washed their hands. I'm not touching that guy. It was a matter for us of of hygiene, right? We don't want to wash our hands. We don't want to catch a disease or a virus or whatever. But in the, the first century, in this context, hygiene isn't the issue. This isn't about having clean hands at the table. This is about ceremonial hand washing. It's something altogether different. The, the religious leaders and the Pharisees and people of their like, would, when when they were to, to prepare for a meal, to go eat a meal, they would go through these very rigorous and very public sort of a hand-washing ceremony. Now you and I, you go in the bathroom, you throw some soap, you wash, and you sing happy birthday to you, or whatever it is you have to do long enough to know how to get the germs off your hands, and you do that until your hands are clean you wash, and nobody sees it, you just do it. But the Pharisees didn't do it like that. It was a public spectacle that they made of hand washing. And it had nothing to do with germs or hygiene. It was a symbolic thing. It had to do with them symbolically showing that they were washing off the contamination of all the unclean things and people that they had touched while they were out and about. They'd been out in public and they'd been around unclean people, sinners and the like. And they touched things that sinners had touched and that defilement was on their hands and they wouldn't dare go eat a meal and, and defile the food that would then defile them and make them unclean. So they had this whole, whole sort of ordeal of, of ceremonial hand washing that they went through. And they made a show of it. If you were to read the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition, you would find some, some instructions for how this went down, Phil Reichen, Included a a segment of this in his commentary and I'll just read it so that you can get some sense for what's going on here Here's the rules at least to some degree The hands are susceptible to uncleanness the missionary says and they are, are rendered clean up to the wrist Thus if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist And the water flowed back to the hand the hand becomes clean But if he poured it both both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flowed back on the hand. In other words, if it went a little beyond the wrist and it came back up on your hand, oh, it's not clean, your hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. I mean, that's just a little bit of it. I could go on and on. This isn't about hygiene, is it? It's about stupid rules to make a show. And so Jesus blows right past this thing. He walks into the home, he lays down by the table, he's ready to eat. We're told the Pharisee is astonished. The practice of, of ceremonial hand-washing was so entrenched in the culture that everybody of any religious ill did it. And it was just really, it was so entrenched and it was so common that you didn't even think about it. You just knew this was what you did when you went to have a meal. And so, I mean, to, to, for somebody, particularly a rabbi, to not do that was absolutely unthinkable. And so this Pharisee, his mind is blown when Jesus walks in and doesn't wash his hands and he sits down at the table and he's likely a bit offended by it, being the owner of the house. But Jesus didn't just forget to wash his hands. He intentionally blows by this man-made tradition in order to expose the hypocrisy of it. See, the Pharisees had taken God's simple commands and he had added to them layer upon layer upon layer of rules, which Uh, which God had not said the very simple things that God said they had complicated and added layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of extrapolation and of interpretation and of additional things that needed to be done in order to please God and there were so many of them by the first century that nobody could possibly even know what they all were much less do what they all were it was impossible But the Pharisees continued to add layer upon layer of additional rules and additional expectation and additional laws beyond what God had explicitly said. And they had imposed all those rules upon the people and they judged people by their ability to keep the rules. And they condemned anyone who failed to keep them well. The vast majority of all these rules, like this hand-washing ceremony, were not reflective of God's will. They were nothing more than than man made extrapolations imposed upon other men, presented as God's law, but not God's law. You see, what God desired from his people was really clear, and in fact, quite simple. He had made it clear on more than one occasion. You could go back to Micah 6 8, and you could see where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? What to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. When Jesus was asked by a teacher of the law, what what is the greatest commandment in the law? In Matthew 22, he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus made it really clear. You know what God did? You know If you could just summarize all the law into, into a very simple principles, you want to know what God expects of men? Righteousness isn't about keeping all these man-made rules. It was all about loving God with your whole self, loving him with your whole heart and walking humbly with him. It was all about loving your neighbor as yourself and as an ex- example of that, extending kindness and treating them justly. That's what God wanted from his people. And all of that had been completely obscured by these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of man-made rules that had been imposed upon the people. And Jesus knew that this hand-washing ritual was nothing more than another example of these foolish man-made rules that did nothing but obscure what God really wanted from his people. God had never commanded it for his people, and so Jesus blows right past it. He knows it's going to offend this Pharisee, and frankly, he does not care. He intends to. You see, spiritual hypocrites do this. Spiritual hypocrites are not content with what God has plainly said in His Word. They they add to it. They take their own thoughts and their own interpretations and their own extrapolations and their own pet beliefs and their own pet applications and they impose them on everybody else as though they're God's law. And they demand everybody else live according to the standards that they've set. And they judge everybody based on whether, whether or not they live up to those standards. And they condemn people who don't. Spiritual hypocrites love to create their own rule book. They love to take their own convictions and codify them into law. They love to project their own rules and expectations on everybody else. And then judge other people by the rules they set. That's what the Pharisees did what they did. And it's such a real temptation for good church-going Christians today. It's such a temptation. Let me ask you this morning, when you look at your own heart, Christian, and you examine your own thoughts and your own motives, do you see any root of this in your own heart? Are there ways in which you do the very same thing? Or you go beyond God's plain plain and and clear word, and you build your own interpretations, You, you sort of pull out your own pet thoughts and applications of the word that may not be particularly clear, and you then impose them on other people. Demand that they live up to your rules. Demand that they apply the word exactly the way that you apply it, even though it's not particularly clear that that application is exactly what God meant. Do you judge people by your rule book or his? Listen, I think if we look honestly at our own selves, it's pretty easy to see this find its way into our lives. That's what spiritual hypocrites do, though. They add to God's word. They're not content with what God has plainly said. They add to it. And Jesus wants no part of this and exposes it here and on multiple other occasions. But he goes on beyond that and he gives us a second principle here, a second sort of characteristic of spiritual hypocrites. They are obsessed with externals. He says to them, Now the Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside also make the inside? Now, it's interesting, we're just told by Luke that this Pharisee is astonished. We're not told that he said anything, but Jesus knows his heart, and we've seen him do this on multiple occasions in Luke's gospel already. He knows what the man is thinking, and so he goes right at it, and he addresses it out loud. And he uses dirty dishes as an illustration of the Pharisee's spiritual condition. It's, in fact, a pretty nasty illustration, isn't it? He says, your, your, your spiritual lives, you Pharisee, are, are like dirty dishes. You're you're obsessed with cleaning the outside of the cups and the outside of the dishes. The part that can be seen by everybody, but you leave the inside filthy and nasty. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going over to, to John and Melody Budd's house for dinner after they've invited you, extended hospitality, and you go to their home for dinner and they've got the table all set beautifully for for the meal and there's the the cup that's upside down and everything, you know, you got all the stuff upside down. It looks beautiful. Everything's clean and shiny. But then you turn over the plate and it's got old crusty food from the last 12 meals. And the cup, the cup, it's got a ring on the inside of it from the last six drinks that were in there. And it's clear that John was given dish duty. I'm kidding he only washed the outside of the cups and the dishes, but he didn't wash the inside? I mean, you would recoil at that. You wouldn't dare eat food out of that, right? You'd be like, pull out the paper plates. Not doing it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Nobody would do that. Nobody would wash just the outside of their plates and dishes and leave the inside filthy. Nobody in their right mind would do that. It's insane. And that is the very illustration for which Jesus uses to condemn this spiritual hypocrite of a Pharisee. He says your spiritual lives are just like that foolishness. You clean up the outside and you make it all shiny so that the people who look on from the outside think you're spiritual and think you're righteous and think you're just tight with God. But the reality is on the inside you are corrupt, you are greedy, you are wicked, and you are dark. Oh, you shine up the outside so it looks shiny, but inside you are filth. You're filth. I think we can all agree that the inside of the dishes is the most important part. It's the part that your food touches. Preferably when it comes to dishes, we'd like both clean, right? The inside and the outside. On the outside, these Pharisees, they looked like very religious, very moral people. They were meticulous keepers of the law. They had made an art out of law keeping. The problem was that their faith was merely external. It was merely external. It was all about the outside and it had nothing to do with the heart. All they cared about was what people could see. It's sort of an Instagram spirituality. Only concerned about the image projected not with reality. This past week, we were in I was in San Diego and Danielle and Aiden had the opportunity to come out with me. I was working during the daytime but in the evenings we would go and see some places around town. I remember one evening we were walking and across the street there was apparently a family that was walking. And they had a, a like, a, looked like a teenage girl and a teenage boy. Maybe they were boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe they were brother and sister. I'm not sure what they were. But they're just walking down the sidewalk in a normal part of the day. And at some point, the the girl gives the, the boy her cell phone camera and has him start filming her. And immediately, she turns toward the camera and starts posing and starts swirling and starts doing all these things, right, while he's filming. She's striking a pose. She's doing this. She's flipping her hair, right? And then she would run over to him and she'd take the phone and she'd look at it and she'd watch the video to see if he captured it right. And if it wasn't right, he'd give it, she'd give it back and she'd go do it again until she got it just exactly the way she wanted to project it on Instagram probably, right? It was the most hilarious thing watching from the outside. I mean, they were literally doing nothing and just walking down the street. There's nothing exciting about that. But there was an image she wanted to project online, but it wasn't reality. She wanted all her friends to think she was doing something glamorous and exciting. Literally walking down a dirty street. That's it. It's the same kind of thing. The spirituality of the Pharisees and all spiritual hypocrites is one that's concerned about the outside, but not the inside. It's all about a projection of a of an image that's all style, but no substance. That's all a projection of an image, but on the inside, there's nothing true about it. He says, "On the inside, you're greedy and wicked. Your hearts are not devoted to God. You're devoted to yourself." These Pharisees had, had, had bought into the lie that the only thing God was concerned about was their works, was their behavior. That as long as they kept the law externally, it didn't matter what was going on in their heart. And it had been a problem among God's people and among their leaders throughout generations. You could go all the way back to Isaiah 29, and you could see God speaking to his people and about his people. And he says of the people of that generation, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God laments that. And Jesus calls this Pharisee a fool. He calls all the Pharisees a fool for thinking this way. He says, you fool. You fool. You think your spirituality is all about externals and that's all that God cares about. You're a fool for thinking something so foolish. Didn't the one who made the outside of the cup also make the inside of the cup? God is the one who made you. He's not just concerned about the outside of you. He's concerned about the inside of you too. He's concerned about what you do, but he's more concerned about who you are. And what you do is only valuable to the degree that it's a true reflection of actually who you are. Good works in a true believer's life are the result of a transformed life. They're not a way to earn it. True godliness flows from a regenerated, transformed heart. In Ezekiel chapter 11, in case you think that's only a New Testament thing, back in Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, God promises this. He says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh that they might walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I'll be their God. You see what God is saying? Here's how it works. How it works is this, I rip out the heart of stone, the cold, dark heart that you're born with, and I replace it with a living heart of flesh. You are transformed into my image. And as a result of that transformation, you'll then be able to walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them as a result of a transformed heart. That what you do flows out of a transformation of who you are. But the alternative to that is to just try to dress up the outside never giving any attention to the inside. And that is the definition of spiritual hypocrisy. It's when who we are on the inside does not match up with what we do on the outside. When there's a disconnect. We're pretending to be something that we're not truly. We want people to believe we're something that we're not. And that's what spiritual hypocrites do. They're obsessed with the externals. They're obsessed with all the things that people can see and keeping up the image. But their hearts are wicked and dark. He gives a third characteristic. Spiritual hypocrites exhibit misplaced zeal. Misplaced zeal. Verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now here Jesus begins to pronounce a series of woes on this Pharisee and by extension the other Pharisees. Apparently there are others around because another speaks here in just a moment. But he pronounces a series of woes on them. And the woe is basically a warning. When you say woe, that means woe. You need to stop and pay attention. There's a warning that something wrong is going on here. And the first woe that he deals with here is a, a, this, this idea of a misplaced zeal, and he illustrates it by their approach to tithing. Now, the word tithe simply means a tenth, and it describes really the practice of God's people giving 10% of the produce of their labor to the Lord, or 10% of the profits from their work to the Lord, if you will. In a very simple way, that's what tithing is. Old Testament Jews were commanded by God to tithe. You could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22, and you could see there, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. The command of God. Leviticus 27, verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Those are just two examples. There are others. But the idea here is this, that God was responsible for 100% of the proceeds that you gained from your work. The idea was the only reason you have a job, the only reason that you have a field, the only reason you have any crops is because God has given you the ability to have that job and he's given you the power to do it well and he's allowed for an increase to come your way because of the work that you're doing. That God is in fact responsible for 100% of all of this. He's blessed you with work and he's made you fruitful. And so really there's a spiritual sort of application of the principle of tithing and a practical. And the spiritual one is this. Uh, returning a tenth of that back to the Lord was a way of doing really two things. It was a way of regularly acknowledging God and giving thanks to him for what he's done and allowing you to work and to, 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 to gain a profit from your labor. So it was a way to, to regularly acknowledge him and give thanks to him. And it was secondly a guard against selfishness and greed. We don't have time, but we could track back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, go back to verse 11 of Deuteronomy 8, and then read sort of, through about verse 18 or so. And you can see God warning his people when they were going into the promised land. He says to them, you need to be very careful when you go into this land because what's gonna happen is you're gonna become prosperous and you're gonna have land and you're gonna have wealth and you're gonna have crops and you're gonna build nice homes and you're gonna live there. And before very long, you're gonna deceive yourself into believing that you are responsible for all those things and you're gonna forget that I'm the one who's responsible for all those things. That's what's gonna happen. And so as a, a means to guard against that kind of selfishness and greed, he called them to the tithe as a regular way of reminding themselves that this is not mine, this is the Lord's. That was the spiritual really, principle behind it. But practically, there was another piece to it in Israel. The tithes of God's people were, were were responsible for funding both the church and the state. Israel was a, a theocratic nation. That is another way of saying that the church and the state were all one organization. Does that make sense? There wasn't like our culture where you have the state, the, the government, and you have the church, which are separate entities. In Israel, all of that was combined into one. It was all run by the same people, the church and the state. And so the, the tithing is, in a sense, not only giving to the church, but it's also their their form of taxation to sort of support the government. If we were to work through the Old Testament and look at all the tithes that Old Testament Jews were required to bring, there were really three of them. There was a 10% tithe that went primarily to fund the the, the government, if you will. There was another 10% tithe that goes to fund sort of all the, the national festivals and the national feasts that they celebrated all year. And then there was another 10% tithe that they had to give every third year. That was a tithe that went to help the poor, sort of a, if you will, um, government assistance for the poor, welfare. So if you add all that up, it was about 23 and a, 23 and a third percent that, that people were required to tithe in those regards. And the Pharisees, if they liked anything more than hand washing, they loved tithing. They loved it. They were zealous and they were meticulous about their tithing. They would, they would, I mean, they would go down and this is what they would do. They figure if, if, if God had said we should give 10% of the produce of the field, then my little herb garden in the window that grows thyme, or that grows rue, or that grows some other little herb or mint, that whenever uh, new plants grow, I have, um, they would take them out, and these tiny little spices, they would, they would count them out. One, two, three, four, five, nine for me, one for God. I mean, to the, to the tiniest little detail of the spices growing in their kitchen. They calculated the tithe down to the tiniest little herb, It went way beyond what God had commanded, way beyond what he'd expected. There was nothing in the Bible that required you to do that with your tiny little herbs. Their oral tradition didn't even require those things. Tithing was primarily something in regard to your crops and your herds. But the Pharisees were not content with that. They were intent to calculate down to the tiniest little herb in their home. And while they're so meticulous and so zealous for tithing their spices, they're neglecting judge, justice and loving God. Jesus calls them and says, you're so meticulous about this one little petty thing and the big things you miss altogether. Justice and loving God. Treating other people with kindness and compassion and loving the God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You couldn't care less about that. You're too busy in your kitchen doling out your tiny little spices to make sure your tithe is to the nth degree. Your zeal is misplaced. All of your energy is going in the wrong direction. You've picked up some petty secondary little thing and you've taken it to the nth degree. And the big things that you should be focusing on, you're giving no attention to whatsoever. You're majoring on the minors. You're minoring on the majors. While you're doling out your spices in the kitchen, you're not pursuing justice. You're not loving your neighbor. You're not serving the poor. You're not helping widows. You're not defending the weak. You're not caring for the orphans. You're not using your power and your authority to protect the vulnerable. You're not using your wealth to help people in need. You're not using your influence to care for the marginalized in your society. All of those things are things you ought to be doing as representatives of God in the land. Instead of that, You're in the kitchen dialing out your spices. It's sad and pathetic. Even their tithing wasn't flowing out of a heart of love for God. They weren't giving joyfully and out of gratitude. It was just another in a long list of ways to try and earn their salvation and to impress other people. That's all it was. And Jesus says, you ought to have done those things without neglecting the others. He doesn't condemn their tithing. He just condemns their misplaced zeal. If you want to tithe all your spices, do it. But you better not do that at the expense of loving God and loving your neighbor. Well, we live in the New Testament or the New Covenant. We don't subscribe to Old Testament tithing law. The New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, lays out a whole different plan for God's people under the new covenant giving. Our giving isn't marked by by standardized percentages. It's to be given freely. It's to be given generously. It's to be given sacrificially, regularly, cheerfully, and so on. Whatever our giving is, it better be marked by a heart that loves God and and a heart that desires to love people and not as a means in order to earn God's favor. But spiritual hypocrites are like that. They have a misplaced zeal. They find some pet pet belief or pet doctrine or pet practice, and they go down this sinkhole into that to the nth degree, and the things that matter the most, they completely neglect. I had a friend one time who was obsessed with the doctrine of election. Anytime you talk to him, that's all you ever heard about was the doctrine of election. Doctrine of election, doctrine of election. He tried to go into ministry, and, and somebody let him... Come and preach one time, and I ran into him after he preached. And I said, Hey, what, what sermon did you preach on your first sermon? You know what he said? It's the doctrine of election. That's all he talked about. He loved that doctrine. He talked about it all the time. But he was mean. And he was unkind. And all sorts of other heart issues that were pretty evident in his behavior. But many knew about the doctrine of election, he had misplaced zeal misplaced seal. Well, unless somebody set my clock wrong, I think our time is up. But there's more. We'll pick up here the next time with this list, but that's a pretty robust list already, isn't it? This idea of spiritual hypocrisy that he shows up in a life by wanting to add things to God's word that aren't there, by making our own little rules and demanding that other people live by them. That it shows up in life And it's sort of a misplaced zeal, being zealous for this thing or that thing, but ignoring the big things. It shows up in in life and and being obsessed with the externals, doing all the things that other people see and neglecting the things that matter the most, the things of the heart. Pretending to be what we're not. I'm telling you, my friends. I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to see ourselves as we truly are in these areas. People would ask me when I came home from my deployment with the the Navy, what was one of the big differences between doing ministry in the military and ministry in the local church. And the thing that always comes to my mind first is the area of counseling. When you're sitting down, I would tell people, when I'm sitting down with with church people to, to do counseling because they've got some problem or some challenge that they want counsel on, it usually takes me about three meetings to actually get to the real issue what's really going on in their heart because it takes about two meetings to get through all the external stuff that's not even real, that's just fake. When you're in the military and you're dealing with people there who don't know God, they walk in the room and they just give it to you in all its gory detail. Here's who I am. Here's the junk I've done. What do you got for me? No hypocrisy there in that regard. They just want help. But Christians, we're obsessed with the externals. We like to hide behind masks. We like to project an image that isn't true. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to believe the image is reality. What's the remedy for spiritual hypocrisy? The remedy is we run to Christ. We humble ourselves before him. We recognize and admit that we are filthy sinners who on our very best days Get so many things wrong. We admit before him that there's no way that we can earn our salvation because there's no way that we can be perfectly righteous. And we admit that he is in fact the only one who's perfectly righteous and that our only hope is that he would would stand in our place. That he would take on our sin and pay the penalty for us. And that he would impute to us his righteousness so that when we stand before the Father, we stand not on our own earned righteousness, but we stand on His. That's the only way a sinner gets into heaven. It's the only way. On the righteousness of Christ, not on an earned righteousness of their own. Let's pray all together and let's pray. Jesus, you are our only hope. You were that Pharisee's only hope. He couldn't see it because he was blinded by the spiritual hypocrisy. He was so entrenched in this external sort of religion that he had invented that he couldn't see the reality of his own heart. He'd lived a lie in front of everybody else for so long he believed a lie himself. He convinced everybody else that he was spiritual and religious and moral and, and second only to God filled with light when in fact he was overcome with darkness his whole religion was all external his zeal was completely misplaced on things that really didn't matter but boy did they look good I love to take the simple things that you would called your people to do and add to it and complicate it and make it hard just to make himself look better And Lord, all of those things are temptations for us as Christians, all of those things. We too like to make up our own rules and impose them on everybody else. We too like to set our own expectations and demand everybody else live up to them and then judge people and condemn them when they don't. We too shine up the outside to look good to everybody when the inside there's greed and wickedness and we know it. Our only hope, Lord Jesus, is that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes to the hypocrisy of our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself in repentance and faith. We would bow before you and embrace you as Lord and Savior and abandon any pursuit of a works righteousness. And you've promised that anyone who does that, anyone who confesses their sin and embraces you as Lord and Savior, submits their heart to you, that you'll take out their heart of stone, their dark heart, and you'll replace it with a living heart of flesh. You'll give them your spirit to dwell within them. And out of that will flow a life of righteousness that isn't trying to earn your favor, but is a result of a transformed, redemptive heart. I pray that that would be the reality of my own life and of everyone in this room. Let us not leave here, Lord, as spiritual hypocrites. Let us leave here as redeemed sons and daughters of the King. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.